Welcome to the weekly service message from the Crossbridge Church. Look for us on the web at www.crossbridgeny.org. Join us now as Pastor Nate Young delivers this week's message. Please go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. Uh, we're in the second half of the f- 1 John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 21 today. 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 21. Before we get into the text today, I want to ask you a question. What do you fear? What are you afraid of? Most of the time when we interact with people, or even when I interact with my own heart, What we're afraid of falls into one of three main categories. The future, death, or other people. Maybe you could sympathize with me. Maybe you're in the same category where oftentimes when you're afraid of something, it it falls into one of these categories. The future, death, or other people. The future seems so unsure. Death is a certainty for all of us. And maybe you would say it this way, I'm not afraid to die, but I'm afraid of how I'm going to die. But I think more often than not, the, the thing that dominates much of our thinking is the fear of other people. Uh, especially for you uh, younger people, kids, teenagers, the fear of other people may motivate you to do something that you know is wrong. And even for us as adults, I know there are times where I have said and done things simply because I'm afraid of what other people think of me. But let me suggest this to you as well. All fear is built upon some sort of lie. Let me say that to you again. All fear is built upon some sort of lie. Now, here in these three categories, let me try to unpack this for you. When I'm afraid of what the future holds, the the unknown, the lie is that if I... I'm worried about it, if I'm concerned about it, somehow I might be able to control it. That that somehow I might be able to impact the future in such a way that would change the course of of the future. And let me tell you, for those of us who've been alive for more than five minutes, we know that that's a lie. The Bible tells us that it's a lie, that that no man who worries for a moment can change the, the course of his life. Or what about death. The lie around death in today's modern culture is that somehow you might be able to avoid it. Did you know death has a 100% success rate? Did you guys know that? You can eat all the kale and tofu that you want. You're still going to die. Unless, of course, the Lord returns. But I think the the lie that grips us more often in our 
daily lives, the, the fear that grips us in our daily lives is the fear of other people. My concern is that we spend so much time thinking about how to live, what to say, what to do, with the simple goal of getting someone else to like you. And can I just tell you, most people don't care about you. Did you know that too? <laughs> the majority of people that care about you outside of your, your immediate family are in this room right now. And we spend so much time being concerned about what other people think about us, what other people say about us, and guess what? They're not talking about you. And there's this lie that's intrinsic to the culture that you should have the right car and you should have the right house and you should dress the right way and you should do these certain things to get other people to like you. And can I tell you this other part of the lie too? Other people's love for you will never satisfy you. It's just not going to. So when we think about fear, I, I want to I put together a link in your mind. Fear is almost always tied to a lie. But truth is always tied to love. Truth and love are inseparable ideas. And, and let me tell you this too. This is the thesis for today. Truth only has one source. And that source is God. Many people will claim to have the truth, but God is the singular source of truth. And this God of truth loves us so much that all our fears can be cast out by his love. The, the truth that, that God imparts to us about who he is and what the future holds and what he expects out of us is all wrapped up in the truth that he loves us. I want, with all of this in your mind, I want to invite you at this time to stand with me for a reading from the Word of God. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 13. If you're able, please stand. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment, because as he is also, we are in this world." There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and he hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, who he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is a reading from the Word of God. You may be seated. I 
I'm not completely convinced of this, so I'm actually hesitant to share it with you, but I'm going to anyways. I think that this particular passage might actually be what's called a chiastic structure, meaning that the main point is actually the middle of the passage, that there are some points at the beginning and end of the passage that relate to each other, but the main point of the passage is the center. So that, that would make verses 16 and 17 the, the main focus of this particular passage. Right? I want you to keep that in mind as I'm teaching this to you, because you're going to notice that I've got verses 13 and 14 related with verse 21. The beginning of the passage is related to the end of the passage. The first thing that I think we see in this particular passage is that God is the source of theological and practical truth. God is the source of theological and practical truth. How do we know that? How do we know that? Remember what we just learned, that, that God is a spirit and he's invisible. And if God is invisible, how can we know him? Well, this passage reassures us that God is knowable because he has chosen to reveal himself to us. He says, by this we know. By this we cognitively understand who God actually is. In this particular passage, just like Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verses 20 through 25, we can be fully convinced of the nature and character of God. Listen to these words in Romans chapter 4, verses 20 through 25. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. That's Abraham that he's talking about. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. You can know, brothers and sisters, you can know, friends, who God is and what he is like. And yes, there is a cognitive element to knowing God, but this passage tells us that there's also a spiritual element to knowing God. It says, because he has given us of his spirit. Now, this should also resonate in your minds in terms of something Paul has written in Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, hopefully to clarify what uh, John has written here when he says he has given us of his spirit. Paul says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children with, of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see, what Paul is communicating, what John is communicating to us here, that, is that the possession of the Spirit, big S Spirit, the Holy Spirit, indicates that the believer is in God. Because remember, we've, we've talked about this, and we're going to talk about it again some more. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all God. They function together in Trinity, co-equal, co-eternal. And so when the Spirit is in us, that's the same as saying that we are in God or that God is in us. But, but here's, the, here's the point of all this. God himself 
has made it possible for you to know him by communicating to us through his word and by coming to live inside of us, abiding in us himself. You see, the ultimate foundation of truth is God himself, where our faith rests. But, but here's where this continues to go, and this needs to, to sink into your heart and mind, because we're a church that loves to study the Bible, amen? You guys love studying the Bible, right? I love the Bible. But studying the Bible should have a particular goal. Here, here's the way, understanding the, the Bible at its whole should have a goal to it. So he, let me say it to you this way. The goal of theology is worship, and worship has its expression in how we live. We learn the Bible, we learn about God with the goal of worshiping God better and deeper as the goal of why we study. And the goal of why we study, which is worship, should be expressed in how we live. And in this particular text, now that we know God, at least in part, we're called to do two things. The first is to testify. This literally means to bear witness. And, but what does the text say we're supposed to te testify to? Well, what's the text say in verses 13 and 14? Or excuse me, in verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. First, that, that God the Father, God the Son are co-equal in nature and co-equal in the Trinity. But Jesus Christ was just more than the man. Jesus Christ is God and that he is the Savior of the world. This is what we're to testify to. The deity of Jesus Christ and that salvation comes through him alone. Isaiah 53, verse 6, talks about this. He says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Without Jesus Christ, every person across all time and space and all history is condemned to eternal punishment and hell. But this is the message that, that you and I get to deliver. This means that God has chosen you as his child to be the one who delivers the message of the Savior to a lost and straying world. The message that all our sin and guilt was laid on Jesus on the cross, that, that he died so that we might be saved. In this message that, that you and I get to carry with us everywhere we go is this joy of sharing the gospel that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Savior of the world. Amen? And if there is anything that this world has needed now more than ever is the truth that there is a Savior from what they are struggling with currently. This idea of being a witness to what you have seen in the Word and experienced through the testimony of the Spirit is one that flows throughout John's letter. 1 John 1, 3, 2, 23, 4, 14, and 15. But what we see in this particular text is, is a second form of practical truth that comes in the form of a command. It, it comes in verse 21. He says, this is the command. If we love God, we must also love our brother. This is talking about other Christians. 
And let us be clear here. Love is not just choosing to not dislike someone. It's not even just getting along with each other. The call here is for you and I, as members of this local church, of the body of Christ, to truly love each other. That we would know each other in a way that is closer than any other relationship that we have out there in the world. That we would know each other's stories and care for each other in an ever-deepening way. That the Holy Spirit that is living in us and growing our lives for God would at the same time be growing our love for each other. That if anyone from the outside world were to see our love for each other, they would say, that's weird, but interesting. You see, part of what makes the church a compelling community is the love that we have for each other in Christ. And unbelievers or other Christians who don't have a church home will see this, and it will be attractive to them. I'm sure you're paying attention, but love is not the course of the day. Division is. But in the church, in Christ, in the power of the Spirit, we have the ability to show the world that there is a different way. And let me just say, it starts with us simply showing up each week to worship God together, and then over time, taking the time to develop relationships with each other. We must see God as glorious enough for us to set aside our own selfish desire to have other people pursue us or our laziness to not step out of our comfort zone to talk to others. But instead, we must, in the love of God, love each other. And let me just say that for the most part, our church does a wonderful job of this. Although this may sound like a rebuke, it's actually a commendation to many of you. Did you know that we've actually scared people away at one point because we're so loving? Did you know that? We've had guests visit who say, those people overwhelmed me with their questions and their intrigue into what I'm like. And they actually didn't return. And I say, well, a lot of things I could say that are probably not appropriate. But let me say this. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper today. The Lord's Supper is meant to show the love and unity that we have for each other as Christ's church. But before taking it today, we must ask, am I working toward the love and unity that this meal is meant to represent? Are you striving inside of the body of Christ to live out what this meal is meant to represent? The second thing, the second main point of this particular passage, I think, is seen in verses 15 through 20, or verses 15 and 20. And here's, here's the point. A liar's true character is revealed by their behavior. John has already gone to great length to talk about how to tell the difference between a, a true believer and a false believer, or antichrist, as he refers to them. The true believer has no problem confessing Jesus is the Son of God, meaning that God and Jesus are one and that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And in this confession and subsequent life that is lived for God, the true believer reveals a repeated theme in this letter by John, that they believe 
that there is a unity and participation in the Godhead. Both the believer and God reside in each other. I've used the phrase, uh, either there are no spiritual orphans or behavior is the clue to paternity. I've said it like that. Because the, the reality is, my biological children, Logan, Sadie, Owen, and Nora, can try to distance themselves from me. Uh, by God's grace, as my kids enter the, the teen stage, they don't think that I'm a nerd or a dork or whatever teenagers think about their parents at that stage. They've not tried to distance themselves from me. They still hug me. Uh, they still show me affection. Well, one of them doesn't very much, but that's a different story. As much as they try to distance themselves from me, they can change their last name, they could move to a different state, they could do all kinds of things, but they can never change one thing. They cannot change their DNA. They cannot change who they are at the very core of their being. They are the children of Nate and Kim. That is who they are. But the false Christian says one thing with their mouth and something totally different with their life. And with their life, they show where the DNA actually lies. And it is not as a child of God. John paints a picture here for us of an impossibility. He he reminds us of the invisible nature of God, that, that none of us have seen God, but that God desires his love to be revealed through us so as to point others to himself. But the false Christian sends a very mixed message about God. In fact, John says that this person simply cannot be telling the truth about themselves. For it's impossible, it's impossible to say that you love God who you haven't seen and then not love those who you can see. This is impossible in John's thinking. A few of my kids have gone through a stage where they said they didn't like a certain type of food. And that one I found the most interesting is that one of my kids said they didn't like butter. That's almost like one of my kids saying they don't like bacon. Like it just, it doesn't make sense. Now, there might be several reasons to not eat a lot of butter. But to say that you don't like the taste of butter in things, that seems a little strange to me. I didn't say it was you, Pookie Bear. (laughs) I wasn't going to oust you publicly. (laughs) But here's the deal. Every time that they were presented with something that was cooked in butter or had butter in it, they would devour it. Chocolate chip cookies, gone. Grilled cheese sandwiches, love them. Here's the point. You might be here today and you say you love God, but when you look at your life and you don't love the things of God, you don't love others, and you, don't love the thing, and you love the things of this world, can I just lovingly tell you, you don't love God. Your life says so. And again, in a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. If this is you, please do not take the Lord's Supper. You might be able to fool those around you, but you cannot fool God. So please, let today be the day of salvation. Behold, today is the day of repentance.
Because if, if you are a liar when it comes to the things of God, he knows, and ultimately your behavior will reveal it. One other point that I want you to see into this passage before we get to the, what I think is the main center of this passage is this reminder, and we've said it several other uh, ways and, and kinds, but we wouldn't know or believe in God's love if he hadn't given it to us. I think we see this clearly in verses 16 and 19. We see these words, know and abide. These are the two of the main themes of this particular letter. These two words together give us something that everyone wants, especially when we're talking about fear. When we're talking about fear, most of the time what people are looking for is certainty, to be able to know for sure that something is going to happen. But there are many things we know that this knowledge hasn't affected the way that we live. So we don't truly believe it. Because he says, you know and you believe. Like, I know water is good for you, but I, I don't drink enough. Why? Because Diet Coke is delicious. Amen? Maybe Diet Pepsi for you, whoever. There are so many other choices to have than water that are delicious. You see, this is the difference between knowing and believing. Belief is the transition from knowledge to life change. And what is it that John is calling us to believe? That the love of God is a lasting and settled conviction. And for the one who knows and believes this, they abide in God and God abides in him. This is actually the second time in chapter 4 that we've heard this. But this passage expands what John has already told us, that the Spirit lives in us. Now that, in a sense, God the Father abides in us. God doesn't just save us and stay away from us. He's so close and personal that as a Spirit, he comes and lives in us. And we have a special and personal relationship with the God of the universe. And we have this, as the text tells us, because he first loved us. God loved you, brothers and sisters, before you ever even existed. And not only did he love you in word, but he loved us in deed. There is a specific act of love that John is referencing here, namely the death of Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary. Maybe you've heard it this way. God showed us how much he loved us when his son went on the cross and spread his arms wide in love for us. How much does God love us? This much. And here is what that love does for us. Love purges fear from the heart of the believer. Verses 17 and 18. In fact, love is perfected in us. It's mentioned here in verse 12 and again in verse 17, both as a reference to Jesus' words from John 17, 23. In John 17, 23, Jesus says this, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Are, Are you getting this? Jesus is literally saying that God the Father loves us in the same way that he loves his only begotten son. 
The fact that we are in Christ and He is in us and that we are one in Christ gives us incredible confidence. You want to be secure in your future? You want to be secure in when your death comes? You want to be secure in how other people view you or don't view you? Rest in the love of God the Father that has been manifested to us through Jesus Christ. This confidence that we have is not just in this life, though. It's not just confidence to face the future or to dispel what other people think about us, but it's in the future at what John calls the day of judgment. Again, to reference the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 24, right before the previous passage that, uh, that's referenced. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. There is a judgment day that is coming. There is a day when all of us will give an account for our life. And the only way, the only way that you will pass through that judgment from death into life is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. John confirms this here in verse 18. He says, as he is also are we in the world? In this phrase, again, John reminds us of where this confidence comes from. Again, it echoes 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Here's the idea. As Christ is in God and Christ abides in us. So we have the footing of Christ before God the Father. The same confidence that Christ is able to stand before the Father, so are we able to stand before him as well. And this leads us to what I think is the main point. There is no fear in love. And in fact, perfect love casts out fear. And hopefully you're getting this picture of what's happening internally to us. Have you ever been gripped by fear? Has fear ever gotten a hold of your heart? It feels like there is an elephant sitting on your chest. And what this text is telling us is that the love of God is so powerful that this thing that, that often grips us, that holds on to us, can actually be cast out. It be, can be driven outside of you. The promise here is that the love of God will put fear out. It will put it outside of you. Because fear has to do with punishment. Fear has to do with some sort of disciplinary chastisement. And when we go back and think about the three main categories of fear that I, I laid out before you, the thing that we're concerned about oftentimes in those categories is the consequences if it doesn't go the way that I want it to. If the future doesn't go the way I want it to, I'm concerned about the ramifications, the punishment that will happen as a result of it. If I don't get to die when I want to die, which for most of us is never. Anybody want to die today? I mean, I kind of do. 
I'm ready to get out of here. You guys heard me say this already, but boy, if God wanted to punch my ticket today, mm. But even when it comes to social media and bullying and what other people think of us, isn't the fear of what other people think of us the concern of the social consequences of other people not liking us? Some sort of disciplinary chastisement that's happening in those things. And listen, he says in this particular text, whoever fears has not been protected or perfected in love. What he is saying to you, believer, you need fear no longer. Because the only thing that is to be feared is the wrath of God. And guess what, brothers and sisters? There is no more wrath for us. The punishment that awaited everyone for their sin no longer applies to us because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The future, death, other people, all of that is secure in Christ. Think about this for a moment. What is the craziest vehicle you've ever seen in your life? I saw a whacked-out Tesla the other day, one of those plaid ones that does like zero to 60 in like half a second. Do you know what God has turned into a vehicle? Death. Death is simply a vehicle that takes us to heaven. The God that loves us is so powerful that he has harnessed death to transport his children into his presence. No one's going to have a crazier vehicle than that. And this fear of other people and what they think about you, if they like you, can I, can I just say to you, the only opinion that matters is the opinion of God. And we have already heard over and over again that He loves us. And no one will ever love us as much as God does. And no one will ever be able to satisfy our need for love like God can. He is the only one. So let us strive to put fear out as we're wrapped in the love of God. And let me just say to you, friend, if you're here today and you do not know the love of God, you should be afraid because the earth or all of time is waiting for God to return. And in that moment, he will judge us. And if you don't know the love of God, you will be found guilty for your sin because you won't be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the punishment on this judgment day is eternal death in the lake of fire. Can, can I just ask you, do not wait another moment. Call out to Christ and he will save you. And you will get to experience his love and freedom that he gives us from fear. But brother and sister, let me lovingly, compassionately, and pastorally say to you, if you are struggling with fear, Take your eyes off of the fear and return them to Christ. Christ is the lover of your soul. Christ has your future secured. He knows the date of your death. He knows what other people have said about you or done to try to hurt you. And he still loves you. Gaze upon the wondrous nature of the Savior of our world and allow his love 
to cast out the fear from your heart. Let's pray and ask him to do that for us now. Would you stand with me? Lord, thank you for your word that speaks directly to our hearts. It speaks directly to our lives. It speaks directly to what we are dealing with. But thank you, most of all, for revealing yourself to us through your word. For without your word, we would not know what kind of God you are like. We would not know what you expect of us. But instead, we can have this incredible clarity of who you are and what the benefits of salvation are and what you've called us to. Lord, if there is anyone who is here today who has believed a lie, a lie about any number of things, Lord, that is encouraging them to be fearful, would you, through the power of your Spirit, reveal that lie to them and at the same time reveal to them your love so that the fear that they are wrestling with might be cast out? This is a promise that you've given us. Lord, help us to to live in your love today so that we might better love each other. And as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, Lord, we ask that you would help our hearts and our minds be united in the love that Jesus Christ has given us. That as a church, as we observe this meal, this, this reminder of all that you have done for us, may it increase and deepen our unity around you. We ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Please feel free to share this message, but remember, don't charge for it or change it. The Lord's message should be free and for everyone.